So today we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians um, chapter 8. If you're following on in the Bibles that are on the chairs, it's on page 1778. So it's 1 Corinthians and it's all of chapter 8. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in this world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as, as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really nice to uh, look out. Actually, that doesn't fit there. I'm going to steal a uh, uh, Chris's. Thanks, mate. Try and avoid the cords. Seamless intro. I'll start that again. <laughs> if, we, uh, if we haven't met, my name's Matt, and uh, it's really great to be with you here this morning. And as someone who's had a bit to do with uh, church planning over the years, it's a real joy, actually, to visit churches uh, like this and see a whole range of faces, probably a bit over 50% that I don't know, uh, because we plant new churches like this to uh, reach people that we haven't met yet. And super encouraging uh, to hear of the kind of missional run into Christmas uh, Carl talked about before. It's a wonderful thing to have more churches in our beautiful city uh, that are reaching out with the great news of the gospel. So super encouraging to be with you in the mor this morning. If you're thinking, what's lead pastor? Uh, that's just uh, that's one of my roles, which means I spend about a day a week, really just supporting and encouraging uh, the churches in the southern part of the Trinity Network. We're firm believers that all the action and decision-making and ownership over ministry is best placed at the local church. Uh, so really consider me as someone sort of behind the lines, supporting and encouraging uh, Carl and the team here. So if you think about how that plays out practically, you know, if someone needs to kind of bring to Carl's attention, you know, the quality of the jokes in the kids' talk this morning... <laughs> You know, don't, don't start penning an email in your mind or filling in a response card. I've got this. I'll follow Carl up uh, during uh, the week about that. Well, coming to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians today, I know that you're in the middle of uh, a series on that. 
So just for me to get my head around things as we get underway, does anyone want to put a raise of hands on how many of you are struggling with the topic of eating food sacrificed to idols? You know, raise, raise your hands if you've got a deep desire to get stuck into a big serve of, you know, Baal's buffalo wings or Moloch's meatballs or uh, Asherah's artichokes. I know it's not a meat, I'm just being vegan inclusive uh, this morning. Well, uh, I didn't uh, think there'd be too many hands this morning, uh, but I do want to like to kind of come in after a busy week with all the things that you've got on your mind. And uh, you hear a passage, uh, read like today's, and you think to yourself, well, you know, maybe there's something in this passage about building each other up in love or caring for our weaker brother or sisters that, you know, Matt might wring some value out of if he really gets his preaching mojo on. But, you know, meat sacrificed to idols, really is that what the God of the universe wants to speak about us, speak to us about today? Or perhaps you're here just checking out who Jesus is for the first time, or Church and Jesus for the first time in a while. Uh, As you heard the Bible reading, it might not have been what you're hoping for. You might be doing a kind of Jason Bourne-inspired mind map of the exits uh, of the room, just to kind of know where you need to step out if things go further south uh, from here. Well, I don't mind actually having my work cut out for me, and I want to put it out there up front as we get underway, that what we're looking at today, the principle sort of behind what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 8, should provoke a huge amount of conversation after church today, over a coffee, and into the week, so much so that many of you will take concrete steps to kind of think about this some more, you know, perhaps buy a book and uh, read more into it. Because I think once we understand what's going on in today's passage, flowing out of it are issues that are going to shape some of the most consequential decisions that you'll make in the next 1, 2, 10, 20, 30 years, and especially for uh, youth and young adults growing up in a rapidly changing uh, world. Decisions that will impact your career, your friendship groups, and what people say about this church and the message about Jesus that we proclaim. And if you're here just checking out who Jesus is, I hope you see that following him isn't just kind of take my life and add in a little bit of spirituality. It's actually a whole new way of thinking to get your head around that you'll come to realise has, through Jesus, real power to bring joy, purpose and a pretty epic drop in the level of anxiety our world creates today. Now, I know we'll need to unpack the passage to get you there, but to give you some insight in where we're going and why I say these things with such confidence, I think the issue at hand in today's passage is that all cultures everywhere have their meaning-making ceremonies, customs, badges of belonging that shape actively how we think about life. They disciple us, they tell us what's important, they shape our values, what we treasure and therefore the way that we live. And that without God revealing himself into a culture, all culture then, without exception, can at best only teach us half-truths, broken versions of the real thing, and in many cases, just plain old deceptions. So what we're looking at today in 1 Corinthians, I think, is all about what followers of Jesus do when they kind of stand at the intersection between what we know 
about the one true God and who he is and the world he has made and our world's kind of meaning-making ceremonies, political movements, HR-driven policies and training, school curriculums, its customs, even its flags that are discipling us 24-7. We'll discover that both in Corinth and today, whether we choose to participate in such things has massive implications for us and our brothers and sisters in Christ and the gospel of Jesus that we proclaim. So let's get to it. There's an outline in your leaflet and it'd be great to have your Bibles open uh, to 1 Corinthians 8 and we'll stretch just in 30 seconds into the first part of chapter 9 as well. As you turn there, some context for us, if you've missed a few weeks uh, in the series. Uh, The Apostle Paul's writing this letter to Corinth, a trading town at a crossroads with all sorts of cultures and belief systems colliding, where some made their fortunes and others just scratched out a living in the more blue-collar roles. And right from the beginning of the letter, the issue of wisdom and knowledge have been frequent themes, as Paul writes to this young and somewhat out-of-control church. Paul moves straight into contrasting the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world uh, before the first chapter is done. And that at the centre of God's wisdom and plans is the cross of Christ. Jesus coming to bear the sins of the world on his shoulders so that anyone whom Jesus makes his own need not bear their sins anymore. These things are kind of front and centre in Corinthians. Truths about Jesus and the wisdom and power of God for those who believe yet we're told seem utter foolishness to all others. That's kind of chapters 1 and 2. So with that background, as Paul begins his argument in chapter 8, he makes a very real distinction between the kind of knowledge which is self-focused, so often resulting in pride and puffed-up self-esteem, and knowledge that leads to uh, love for the God of love, uh, a love that manifests itself and lovingly building up others. Verse 1, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. There's different kinds of knowledge there. But whoever loves God is known by God. Now, we all possess knowledge. Paul's right with that one. Some of us a great deal some a little less, but well-learned or simple. Both can be without the true knowledge of God, which I think Paul would sort of go on to say in his letter, means that we miss the point of life entirely. There is a knowledge which leads to the love of God because we know what he's done for us through his son Jesus. Then it finds a very natural outworking in lovingly building others up. Our world constantly tells us and our kids and our youth that they need more knowledge, they need to work harder, they need to get the degree to get the job and the best firm, so study more, you know, keep building up knowledge. It's all about knowledge in our world. Now, it's not that hard work or success are bad things, yet we should tell our kids, uh, if we have them or our nieces and our nephews, the many kids uh, that are being served in our kids' programs this morning, and ourselves far more often that God doesn't really care at all about how much you know about this world. He cares about the person you are 
and whether or not you have the knowledge of what Jesus has done for you. And whether from that you love God and express that love to others by building them up. Because verses 4 and 6 say it's that knowledge that actually changes who we are. Paul says to the church, in regards to food sacrifice to idols, we know that idols are nothing at all in the world. And verse 4, that there is no God but one. There are many so-called gods and lords in this world and they really don't amount to anything. And the Bible ruthlessly mocks idols and false gods cover to cover. Yet for the Christian, verse 6, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. We are reminded here that the chief end of humanity is to live for our Creator God, and that we have one Lord Jesus through whom we live. Referring to Jesus being the one who saved us, uh, through whom we have new life as Jesus uh, makes us a new creation, fit for eternity with him. These are not just words of kind of spiritual insight to add a little something to the human experience. What God does for us in Jesus changes the Christian to something else entirely, giving us the children of God's status once more, to enjoy and be with God forever. And being changed forever changes how we live, verses 7 to 13. As we get into the nitty-gritty of the issue at hand for Corinth in regards to meat sacrifices to idols, we do need some context. Uh, Being part of the Greco-Roman world at the time, they had gods for everything, and the worship of them was woven into the fabric of everyday life. So someone would be looking for success in some new business venture uh, or a voyage uh, or be marking a special family occasion and you would bring a meat sacrifice to the temple and uh, a third would be burnt to the gods, uh, a third would be given to the priest which often was then taken down the markets and uh, sold, idol meat, and a third for the guests. These were important social and cultural occasions with family, friends, work colleagues, and it would be very unusual to be invited and not attend. Uh, You'd cause offence. You might be considered a little odd or a bit weird. So for the Corinthian believers, there was a very real issue here. Is it okay as a follower of Christ to participate in these ceremonies? If you didn't go with the crew before you set out on a great sea voyage, what would everyone think? Did you want the ship to run aground somewhere? What would it mean for your kids if you didn't accept the invite to head down the temple for little Susie's birthday celebrations? Or as your son became a man and wanted to set out in life and a job, would he be accepted into society if he didn't seek the blessing of the gods and head down to the temple and make a meat sacrifice? Now, for the Corinthian believers, they knew that there was only one God who sent his son Jesus into the world as Saviour and Lord. So the question is for them, could they or should they still participate in society's meaning-making social customs and rituals which gained you acceptance? Because, let's face it, who wants to be a social outcast, thought of as weird or intolerant? Gravity would have pulled you just to go along. 
And of course, it would have been easy to justify with your knowledge that we know they're not real gods anymore. And maybe we'll get more gospel opportunities if we play along. We have to be in the world. We know it's all hocus pocus. But Paul is very clear, verse 8, that also it's true that food does not bring us nearer to God. And we're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Yet he says, verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. He's referring here to the weaker brother or sister in Christ who, verse 7, might not be as knowledgeable and still think of the meat being sacrificed to another God. And, you know, they see their eating and under pressure from society to just go along emboldened by your example, they might participate and sin against their conscience and in doing so dishonour Jesus. And for Paul, this is not a light matter. Paul describes in these verses as destroying your brother or sister in Christ. And you are sinning against them in this way and in doing so, you're sinning against Jesus himself. Strong words. Yet still our tendency is to think, well, you know, maybe just while there's a weaker person around, maybe we shouldn't for a while and, you know, until they get a little stronger and uh, have greater knowledge and can participate in such things because we know they're all false gods and, you know, just this constant pressure to keep justifying our behaviour uh, in longing to fit in in our world. Yet if you read on in 1 Corinthians, that is not where the Apostle Paul is heading here at all. He's actually approaching them quite gently on an issue that he sees of first importance. By the time you get to 1 Corinthians 10, in a few weeks, he's in full flight, flee from idolatry. These cultural ceremonies deeply oppose God and have evil behind them and he wants Christians to take no part at all. Yet he's gentle at first, seeking to win them over in our chapter today, reasoning with the Corinthians about something that will cost them Social status, opportunity to make it in the world, and indeed friendships. He's working his way up to being very clear it's totally inappropriate for a Christian to continue on in their world's kind of meaning-making, socially lubricating, discipling your worldview, ceremonial activities that are deeply opposed to the truth revealed by God. So to bring that thought of, uh, line of thought now into today, uh, to make it applicable for us, every culture has its rituals, its tokens of belonging, its ceremony, its badges, dare I say flags, that are cultural load-bearers of belief and belonging. And it's pretty easy for us to look, kind, of, kind of look at other cultures and spot them or look back to the Corinthians and say, how could they be so stupid, you know, worshipping, you know, with the cup of Christ and with demons at the same time. It's easy to look kind of across the world to other ceremonies and rituals as well. You know, think of China where you visit an ancestor's tomb. You know, you clean the gravesite. It's called a tomb sweeping ceremony. You clean the gravesite, share a meal, burn paper money as you look not only to uh, honour your relatives but also to seek the blessing of your ancestors so that life will go well and that you will be blessed. So imagine then as a new Christian in that setting what do you do? Great offence will be taken if you don't do it. How immensely dishonouring to your ancestors and your culture. 
you'd be a social outcast. You could say, well, we know that our ancestors don't bring us blessing, God does. It's all just about respect and go along and do it. But the issue raised today is what does that say to your weaker brother or sister, to your children, in fact, about and to the world about what you actually believe? Could you cause someone to participate in something their conscience does not allow for and therefore as they sin against God, you are the person who led them into that sin? And Jesus takes that very personally and calls that sin from us against him. Easy to spot elsewhere, but all cultures everywhere have their meaning-making, culturally load-bearing ceremonies, badges, tokens of belonging that actively disciple people away from the truth of the God who is. Do we as Christians participate in them? I hope you now start to see this is where the rubber hits the road as we think about yourself standing at the crossroads in these moments of society and how it tries to shape us and bring meaning to the world that conflicts with the truths that we know about God. What do we do as Christians at those moments as we stand at the crossroads as these things collide? I want to put it to you this morning that as the pendulum of our culture here in Australia, uh, that used to be sort of nominally Christian, kind of swings away from being so, you know, they just think, you know, there's just the, the drop in the need for weddings in church, prayers before parliament, scripture classes in our schools, as those things kind of fade away, I think we're returning to a situation much more like our time that we read of in Corinth where our world is and continues to fill up with all sorts of kind of culturally load-bearing activities, belief statements that we're called to go along with to signify that we belong and can have a hearing in modern society. Do we as Christians participate and say that that's okay to the next generation, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that church, to maybe the new Christian in the office setting? And as we participate, however we feel about that, what does it say to the world that watches on, wondering what we really believe? Now, I'm aware that I'm about to light uh, a few controversies here, and I want to preface it by saying two things. Firstly, Christians are for all people everywhere. There is no place in the Christian life to be fearful or hate-filled towards anyone. And we want to lovingly serve all people and see people of all sorts of cultures and identity come to know the saving knowledge of Christ. Yet we have to acknowledge a reality that as Paul opened this letter, he's uh, saying to those who are being saved that the message of the cross of Christ is considered the power and wisdom of God to us, but to the rest of the world it's considered utter foolishness. There's always going to be controversy around the good news of Jesus. And secondly, I want to preface it by saying these issues that I'm about to raise are deeply uh, complex and will be costly. So please don't hear me just saying this is all straightforward, you know, simple, go forward out there and just hang the cost. But as the pendulum swings, our world, which has kind of increasingly framed God out of the equation is increasingly getting quite precious 
about its new beliefs. 1 Corinthians 8 is a passage about what a Christian does standing at the crossroads of culture and their knowledge of God as this happened. And suddenly, and I get this as a pastor as a lot, and a lot of people come to me, this is actually getting fairly real, where every junior asks to wear a rainbow badge for Pride Month in the hospital. Or the directive comes from HR to add a rainbow to your work email signature. Now, tripping over myself to be clear, there is no place for hate. We don't want to be kind of the shouty at culture Christians banging on about our rights. That is not helpful. But rather, what does a loving kind of for the LGBT community person do who has a desire for many in that community to find their deepest identity in Christ and find joy and life? What do you do at that moment as culture and the truth of God collide? Do you engage in the sometimes immensely costly talk with your boss or HR that you don't want to wear that badge of belonging. The temptation is, of course, oh, we can go back to our knowledge and say to ourselves, well, the rainbow actually reminds us of Noah and God's first cleansing of the world from sin so I can wear it and have another meaning. But what about the young Christian in the office who struggles with this and looks up to you as a mature brother or sister in Christ? might you cause them to stumble in sin and you be guilty of sinning against Christ himself. It's serious stuff. And outside the scope of this passage, but not the wider letter, what does it say to the watching world about what we believe is the good news of Jesus for all people everywhere? So what do you do when your kid's school announces a new program in primary school, aided to embrace diversity about teaching about sexuality and gender fluidity? Do you say, well, we know God's design for relationships and that sex was meant for, made by God for one woman and one man in marriage? You're at the crossroads at that point between culture that is set against God and your beliefs about who God is and who he has made us to be for him. As we sung in that new song, I can't remember all the lyrics, but it really struck me. That second song we sung today was us saying to God, we want to live for you, we want to live for your glory, we want to live for your honour. Beautiful song, I really liked it. Easy to sing in here on a Sunday, more challenging as you step into the school, the office, the building site uh, on Monday. So in the school example for... uh, you know, just to pick one to drill down in on. When do three or four Christian families ask for more information about that program? And in a kind, supportive of the school, kind of non-shouty way, go and see the principal and express your concerns. Do you ask your kids to opt out of that program? Will that mean that they will be ridiculed? Will they not get the party invite as you become seen as the religiously intolerant folk amongst the parent community? As the pendulum swings away from our, hear me say, nominally Christian foundations, I'd put it to you, we are swinging back to a time much more like the Corinthian world with all sorts of culturally imposed rites of passage, programs, badges, flags and tokens of belonging that deeply oppose the knowledge we have 
from the one true God. As our world's culture setters and our schools, our government departments and media become increasingly precious about individualistic self-expression, our next year, two years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years are going to be marked by a really quick ramp up in such things. I often think uh, the UK is about 10 years ahead of us, kind of culturally. The US is about 10 behind. I discovered this week in a bit of research, I reckon Canada's 15 years ahead of us in these things. And I listened to uh, a sermon from one of my favourite preachers in the UK on this passage as part of my prep this week. This kind of thing is front and centre and dominating life and discipleship. As that kind of baton is increasingly passed to us, the question will be, as these things come, do we participate and what costs will we, we, will we be willing to bear when conscience and love do not allow us to? With love and compassion to those with gender dysphoria, and I have, as a friend, a post-op uh, transsexual friend, so I get the struggles and the pain and the enormous complexity. What will love dictate over the coming years for a clinical psychologist when they have to sign a statement that they will always provide gender-affirming care? This is complex. Please don't let me state it as simple. And this is also not a self-focused, banging on about our rights concern, which some Christians really unhelpfully do in the media. For us, it's how do we lovingly proclaim the gospel in such times that are concerning? How will we build up our brothers and sisters in Christ, the new Christian in the office, the kids in our kids' program kind of concern? I think as we ponder such things, I think we can now get chapter 9, and I'm a little out of time, so I'll just give you the sense of verses 1 to 18. As the Corinthians are sort of sitting there, a little bit stunned, like some of you are, pondering the cost of all this, the Apostle Paul is in essence saying, I have lots of rights as a minister of the gospel. But as a person set free by the gospel, who loves God and wants to build others up in love, I'm actually willing to give up all my rights, endure any hardship, so that the gospel that makes people truly free is proclaimed freely. What gives him the conviction to do so? Well, I'm straying into next week's passage that John Warner will be bringing to you, but to give you a, a prelude, he says in verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. His eyes are lifted to that great day when he'll be with God forever in eternity, sharing the extraordinary blessings of knowing that his small efforts as one man giving up his rights to proclaim the gospel freely will see him share in the blessings of seeing many people with God forever and knowing that he's played a small part in it by God's hand. There is actually great freedom in living with our hope placed elsewhere. Now, I'm very conscious as I stand here this morning, such things are easy for me to say up front here on a Sunday, much harder to live out for you tomorrow. These are complex issues that will take some nuancing and great care to imply into many a complex different situation. So what's a practical next step for us? 
Firstly, I wanted to be the you know, person who could jet in and disappear and raise all these uh, uh, questions for you, to put it on your agenda as Christians, because I think this is going to be a huge thing over the coming decades for us. Secondly, I'd thoroughly recommend more of us getting a handle on what's going on in our culture at the moment and where it's headed. A book I've really loved of late uh, is this one here called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. It's written by an Australian, uh, Steve McAlpine, out of Perth, who I think is one of the best uh, Christian social commentators of our times. And on Thursday night, I was actually in this uh, same room as he was previewing kind of part two to this. This helps you understand what's going on in culture. He's got a new book coming out next year on his suggestions on how as Christians we respond. And it sounds awesome. But really good for, you know, a good handful of us to go out and get a book like this and to read and to discuss and and bring these uh, things into our discussions after church and in our Bible studies. But as I wrap up, I want to leave you with an encouragement in challenging times because I realise how overwhelming these things can be to consider. And I want to challenge you to be focused on living good lives right now as an investment in what is coming. And I want to say too that Christians are not the only people noticing that the world is changing rapidly and have worries and concerns about it. As people, as Christians, who have read the end of the book and know that Jesus triumphs and that death has been conquered and that there's an open invitation today for all people everywhere, extended as we proclaim the gospel, that anyone from any background, however they identify, whatever they struggle with, can be part of God's family forever. We of all people, in sort of polarised and rising sort of times of anxiety, should be the most non-anxious presence in any setting, I think. To apply to the workplace, for example, in light of what I've said about the potentially challenging conversations coming to you shortly, it's a great time to be working hard to be the conscientious person on your team, the reliable one, the one who is known for turning away any sort of praise that gets put on them for their uh, hard work and to share that with the team and with others, to be the person who doesn't do the flip side of that and shift blame when things go wrong, to be the person who apologises sincerely and when people apologise, forgives others quickly in an increasingly unforgiving world. To be the person who's known as being calm, steady in conflict, who is not caught up in gossip and slander, who can be relied upon as the person to go and talk to when things kind of fall apart on the work site or in the office uh, or in the hospital or in the school. To be the person who doesn't feel the need to claim what's theirs to insist on their rights To be that kind of person, all with the goal that when the moment comes, when we stand at the crossroads where our culture and our knowledge of the truth of God collide and we humbly and kindly take a stand, that as the cost is paid, and some of course will loudly criticise, that some might see a calm, humble, loving, other person-centred, and quietly confident person and might want to know more about the God of love 
that we serve. That the children of the next generation, the new Christian in the office, might be emboldened too to take a stand for Jesus out of love with the goal of building others up rather than falling into sin and error. Complex thoughts, challenging thoughts. So I'll close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we pray uh, for this church and indeed uh, all churches who uh, hold lovingly to your gospel of grace and peace right across the globe as uh, we all live uh, in cultures that uh, at best only reflect half-truths, broken versions of the real thing and in many cases straight error. We pray that Uh, We as Christians, as we stand at the crossroads when culture and our knowledge about you and how you have made this world collide, please help us to uh, faithfully, uh, humbly and motivated by love uh, be really wise in when and how we take a stand on these very complex issues. We pray that we might be a community that in love uh, builds each other up that we might not just prize knowledge for knowledge's sake, uh, but actually that we'd see it increasingly transform our lives uh, so that, as we've heard in the kids' talk this morning, we know that love beats knowledge. Please help us uh, to love you from the heart. Uh, Please help us to lovingly build each other up. And in times of great trial, as we've heard in verse 3 of today's passage, please help us to know that for all who love you, Uh, you know us and will hold us safely in your care and might we too, like the Apostle Paul, long for that day uh, when we might stand you when all uh, trial and death and sin is gone and share in the blessings of the gospel. Uh, And from this day to that great day, uh, please help us uh, to honour you, uh, to love you, our brothers and sisters in Christ and hold out the good news of Jesus in increasingly challenging times to a world that desperately needs it. Uh, For the sake of others, might we bear uh, the cost that comes with this and might we do it for your glory and honour from the heart. It's in Jesus' precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.